Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 17th of June, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Mark Anderson from the USA and our very own nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Uh, we'll get straight on with the uh, breaking news of this morning that uh, Pretty Patel has decided to sign the extradition order uh, for Julian Assange. So WikiLeaks tweeting this out. Uh, at, uh, at about half past 10 this morning. Uh, UK Home Secretary approves extradition of WikiLeaks publisher uh, Julian Assange to the US where he should, would face a 175 year sentence, a dark day for press freedom and British democracy. The decision will be appealed. So the Home Office uh, said that under the Extradition Act 2003, uh, Priti Patel must sign an extradition order if there are no grounds to prohibit the order being made. Extradition requests are only sent to the Home Secretary once a judge decides it can proceed uh, after considering various aspects of the case. Uh, and then it goes on to say, in this case, the UK courts have not found that uh, it would be oppressive, unjust, or an abuse of process to extradite Mr. Assange, nor have they found that extradition would be incompatible with his human rights, including his right to fair trial and to freedom of expression, and that whilst the US, in the US he will be treated appropriately, including in relation to his health. So that's what the Home Office said. And uh, really, what do we say? Brian Pretty Patel, well, people should be camped outside her office and uh, uh, at least putting pressure on to have this reversed. But uh, they, will be, they will be appealing. Yes, this is the key thing for people to do something. Get those emails in, letters, attend in person, be reasonable, be polite. But the public has to show that it's not happy. What our chat box has just said is what a... What a disgraceful woman. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. OK, let's move on to economic matters. And uh, well, on Wednesday, the Bank of England uh, decided to increase uh, interest rates to 1.25%. The vote was six to three in favour of that. Uh, in fact, there, was, uh, there were three people on the uh, committee that were hoping to raise it uh, even further. But anyway, uh, CPI inflation, they said, is expected to be over 9% during the next few months and to rise to slightly above 11% in October. Uh, the increase in October reflects higher projected household energy prices following a prospective uh, additional large increase in the off-gem price cap. Um, so, uh, Brian, uh, the inflation has been heading north now for several months, uh, but it's going to stop heading north at this point until October when off-gem decides to increase the, uh, the or implements the price cap increase, and then it's going to jump up another 2%, and they still believe they can get it back down to 2%. They're still living in cloud cuckoo land. Uh, they went on to say this, uh, UK GDP was weaker than expected in April, uh, partly reflecting a further decline in test and trace activity. You're looking... I'm looking puzzled. Yes. Well, basically what that means is that uh, the government was spending so much money on test and trace over the last two years that that actually had a uh, significant effect on GDP. Uh, and now that they have uh, finally finished the um, free uh, testing and tracing of people, that has now been knocked off. So the Bank of England said that that would have been about 0.5% uh, in April, uh, the effect of that, that alone. Um, so that gives an idea of how much money the government has been spending on that. Uh, they then went on to say bank staff now expect GDP to fall uh, by 0.3% in the second quarter as a whole, weaker than anticipated. Uh, at the time of the May report. I think everybody is pretty well aware of that. But then uh, if we look at what's going on in the United States, well, this was the 15th of June, Federal Reserve issues FOMC statement. 
uh, and they were saying that, well, what were they saying? Uh, overall economic activity appears to have picked up. Oh, that's good news. That was the 15th of June. Economic activity has picked up. Uh, also on the 15th of June, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta said that, uh, well, actually, no, it's not picking up at all because uh, GDP will rise uh, by 0.0%. Um, so that's good. They're a bit confused there, clearly. Uh, but don't worry, coming back to the, uh, oh, by the way, nothing in any of these reports uh, about uh, money printing or anything like that. It's all Russia uh, and uh, Ukraine and so on that's causing all this. Uh, so that's uh, moving back to the Bank of England because money printing, not a problem. So we're going to print more money uh, by adopting CDBCs. We've been talking about this for quite a long time. And Andrew Hauser, Andrew Hauser, uh, the executive director for markets, was in the United States uh, over the last week or so, uh, talking about uh, implementing central bank digital currencies. These would have an impact impact on the bank's balance sheet. Quantitative easing has an impact on the bank's balance sheet as well. But anyway, so would CBDCs. The tech is new, he said, but issuing money is one of our oldest functions. So that should make us all feel safe and secure in this uh, inflationary time. Uh, but if, uh, sadly, if anybody thought that Bitcoin was going to be a store of value, uh, they have been getting a bit of a shock over the last couple of months and particularly over this week. Uh, so uh, Bitcoin falls to fresh 18 month low as crypto meltdown deepens. Uh, that's uh, one. Uh, I think that's uh, uh, NBC. But uh, if we look at Wall Street on parade, their language a bit stronger. Crypto carnage hits every asset class tied to crypto. So uh, CDBCs, uh, well, maybe that's the, the, the place to be then if, uh, if Bitcoin, I'm being sarcastic, of course. Well, I'm looking at it and thinking, well, I'm, why I'm not surprised, Mike, because I don't think that um, Bitcoin was going to be allowed to survive. So, but maybe that's... Uh, Maybe that's not correct, but that was my gut instinct. How could this one currency be allowed to keep moving on? Uh, uh, I well, think it's that, been that's, attacked. That, that's a much longer conversation. But uh, let's move on to housing in the UK. And uh, well, good news for renters. At least that's how it's being presented. Uh, incredible news uh, from the government. Today's white paper from Michael Gove, uh, if legislated in full, is a once in a generation reform of private renting uh, that will move some sorry, remove some of the leading causes of homelessness in this country. Will it? Let's look at that in a second. So here is the uh, white paper, a fairer private renting renter sector. Uh, and what are they saying here? A, a fairer private rented sector white paper published today, uh, that was uh, yesterday, uh, will ensure millions of families benefit from living in decent, well-looked-after homes as part of the biggest shakeup of the private rented sector in 30 years. The white paper marks a generational shift that will redress the balance between landlords and 4.4 million private uh, rented tenants. And so what are they saying? Uh, homes uh, must be free from serious health and safety hazards. Uh, landlords must keep homes in good state of repair, so renters of clean, appropriate and usable facilities. Uh, So-called no-fault Section 21 evictions that allow landlords to terminate tenancies without giving any reason will be outlawed. Uh, it will end any use of arbitrary rent review clauses. Uh, they will make it easier for tenants to have pets in their homes. Uh, and then they're going to double the notice periods for rent increases and give tenants stronger powers to challenge them if unjustified, if they are deemed to be unjustified. And they're going to make it illegal for landlords or agents to have blanket bans on renting to families with children. Um, and uh, so they're also going to uh, make it uh, illegal for uh, fixed term tenancies. Uh, so tenancies will be open uh, to to run 
uh, for in perpetuity as such. Um, but what is the effect of this? And is this really um, going to uh, help in terms of homelessness with uh, rented uh, with tenants? And the answer to that is a firm no. So let me just put this on screen. Uh, this is uh, Property Industry I, and uh, this is Phil Spencer, famous from uh, various television programs, uh, saying mass exodus of private landlords is a catastrophe for the country. Now, I can tell, tell you, Brian, that uh, I now know a significant number of people, I mean, you know, 10 or 15 households uh, that, that we know, that my family knows personally, that are now in the situation where the landlords are selling up uh, and they're being evicted. And this city in particular has a massive shortage of rental property because it's a university town uh, and much of the uh, buildings are used for student uh, lets and so on. So there's yeah. nothing for families. Uh, so this puts families in a very, very difficult position. They're being evicted um, uh, and the houses are being sold. So why are they being sold? One of the reasons is, of course, they're concerned that if they've got a buy-to-let mortgage, that the mortgage rates are going to go up significantly in the next uh, several months. Uh, and rents, of course, aren't going to go up in proportion. And they're going to end up with having a, a bigger outlay in terms of their mortgage repayments than they have in rents. But the other reason is this legislation. And in fact, uh, just before we were coming on uh, air this, uh, this afternoon, uh, there were headlines starting to appear in the mainstream press uh, of, you know, that, that Phil Spencer article was written uh, a few days ago, uh, but uh, there are more headlines saying, you know, mass exodus from the, from the, the uh, landlord market. Uh, and this is going to have a massive effect. And in fact, The Guardian from a few days ago uh, UK renters, how have soaring prices and lack of supply affected you? Uh, so this is not just a Plymouth problem. This is countrywide. Uh, and this is a, going to be a massive problem for people who are not going to be able to find accommodation. Yeah. And of course, the soaring prices bit there is uh, is a key one as well, because the prices are just going up and up. wonder whether we could ask Mark Anderson to comment. Uh, Mark, I've always been stunned by uh, the amount of homelessness in America where you see supposedly very rich cities like Los Angeles with hundreds of people simply sleeping in tents on the streets seems wrong. Yeah, one of the things I understand is happening is that um, probably private equity firms, other financial uh, behemoths are buying up rental homes and so you'll have one large entity owning large tracts of rental homes. And so private landlords, like myself, I happen to be one. I own a home that I rent in Niles, Michigan. Private landlords are sort of going the way of the Edsel. And so you're going to have more tenantry. That's an older term, but far less home ownership and much more tenantry, much more people being renters if they can find a place to live in the first place. So people are being dispossessed of the idea of owning a home. Uh, the very concept of home ownership is on the ropes. And now with these rate hikes by the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, I'm sure the Bank of Canada, uh, it's going to be that much harder, especially for those on variable rate mortgages. And what does that do? There's two kinds of inflation, right? There's cost push inflation, which is increased costs that are pushed on uh, retailers, producers, wholesalers, and those costs are, are pushed on to the final consumer. That consumer can be somebody buying a loaf of bread. That consumer can be someone renting a home. And then there's printing more money than there is productivity, where, where the money supply exceeds productivity. 
if you have them roughly on par, things work out okay. But of course, in a debt-based money system, every dollar or pound is born as debt. And so it becomes a very vicious cycle. So it, it's a real um, uh, kind of cannibalizing of the populace. Yes, okay. Um, thank you for that, Mark. Yeah, okay, brilliant. So uh, let's just uh, move on to uh, back to Poland here. We mentioned this on uh, Friday. Uh, that the Poland, uh, people in Poland had been told to gather forward amazing, uh, amid soaring energy prices. And of course, <clears throat> those soaring energy prices related to the uh, shutting off of uh, energy from uh, Russia, but nonetheless, uh, also inflation uh, being generated by money printing. But anyway, uh, they were told to gather forward. Uh, well, unfortunately, it's not just Poland that's getting this message because uh, as RT has reported here, uh, Latvia as well. So EU nation rushes to collect firewood amid amid fuel crisis. I mean, are we heading back to the dark ages, Brian? This yes. is just unbelievable. Well, but people shouldn't forget that we've already got under the green agenda in in UK the movement towards the fact that you will you will not burn wood even. So we've got people going and saying, yeah, I'm I'm going to go and collect firewood because I need it because of the energy crisis in UK. You're not probably not ultimately going to be connecting, collecting firewood because the government's not going to permit it to be burnt unless it's dry and specially stored. Uh, so Poland and Latvia already at the collecting firewood stage to replace their gas and coal. Uh, but, uh, well, Serbia, well, it's not going to be too far behind because uh, they are now being told that they should not be receiving Russian gas supplies by November, just in time for the winter. Um, and uh, so maybe they should be getting collecting uh, for, for it as well. Yes. Yes. And, and of course, in, in the uh, uh, mainstream press and media at the moment in Europe, in the West, we see um, a story where nobody knows quite where to go. Do we want Russian oil? Do we not want Russian oil? Is there, is there a way we can get around it? So it seems that economically the EU is, is in this state of turmoil, yes. which has been created at their own hand. Indeed. Well, that uh, probably gives us a link into uh, having a little look at the uh, war in Ukraine. But first of all, we just want to look at the BBC and the BBC's use of propaganda. This is a little film clip that struck me very quickly because of my military background in the Cold War. Let's have a look at what the BBC was talking about. suddenly became real. An unknown aircraft was flying close to NATO's aerospace and these jets are just coming back from intercepting them. Could you identify the plane that you just intercepted? Yes, I can, but I can't tell you the type. I, what, like, from which country was that? Uh, it was non-military, uh, actually non-NATO military. Russians? Don't ask. 
so we were smiling in the studios that uh, uh, BBC uh, clip was uh, being played because the thing is simply so ridiculous. Uh, we've got the spooky music in the background. There's talk about everything being tense in the video. Uh, they're talking about it becoming. Uh, this is suddenly something that has arisen to which I can say with great confidence, no, it hasn't. This has been going on during the Cold War and since the Cold War. So the intercepting of each other side's planes is a regular occurrence and there's nothing special here. Um, what did they say? Something about proximity of these encounters is, is amazingly dangerous. Well, since the Russian aircraft is very large and it's a relatively slow propeller-driven plane, the proximity is controlled by the jets intercepting it. And so that uh, danger would fall on the NATO planes that are doing the intercept. But the main point is that that clip is totally focused uh, to get the public to believe that there is yet more to come from Russia and we should be very frightened. But actually what is taking place is a routine uh, occurrence and has been the case since the Cold War. So I think the BBC need to be brought to book over this. But uh, the reality, and I'm going to keep pushing this one that they don't want to get near, is the casualties in the Ukraine war. And uh, yesterday we mentioned this 200 dead per day. We were asking a question. Uh, the Telegraph had originally said uh, uh, back on June the 9th that Ukraine soldiers faced 200 daily casualties. And we said, is that 200 dead per day? In which case, on normal um, casualty statistics, that would mean an extra 800 wounded. Uh, well, from all the material I've been researching over the last 24 hours, we are indeed looking at a thousand or a thousand plus Ukrainian casualties per day. And we're certainly looking at 200 dead per day. So these are the statistics that the West doesn't want to talk about because we're still pouring in the Western weapons to make sure those Ukrainian casualties climb even higher. But let's look at the uh, BBC. Um, we just animate their front page because you look at all the colour, the summer flight cancellations, uh, 10 tips for sleeping in hot weather. The nonsense grows and grows. Uh, where is Ukraine? Well, if we press the button, we should be able to animate this. And you will see that the little greyed out zone is where you go to look at Ukraine. But if we scroll through the page, uh, what are we going to see? Happy, smiling faces of Zelensky as he meets the European representatives. And surprise, surprise, the Ukrainian war has disappeared. It simply disappeared from the uh, BBC's reporting until we come to a very, very small paragraph uh, right at the end, which we'll have to jump to another uh, slide in order to show our viewers uh, what they're talking about. So the Ukraine war largely disappeared. Uh, but what did they say? Ukraine has now lost up to half its military hardware, the, the country's deputy defence minister says. Uh, Denis Sharapov called for more military aid as fierce <laughs> fighting in the east of Ukraine continues, with heavy losses reported on both sides. On the ground, Ukraine says Russia is concentrating its forces for an assault on the eastern city of uh, Slovyansk. Fighting is also continuing for full control of Severodonetsk. Um, so the reality is that uh, the Ukrainian forces are now starting to collapse. Ukraine is losing the war. Uh, that must mean, Mike, that uh, Russia and the uh, Ukrainian separatists are winning the war. 
Uh, but as we can see, the BBC moves on. Uh, well, indeed. And uh, well, yesterday, Liz Truss was giving a statement uh, to the uh, House of Commons on this. Uh, and we're just going to listen to a few seconds of it and we'll talk about it afterwards. We are now approaching a critical moment. Russia is bombarding towns and cities in the east and some outside Ukraine are questioning whether the free world can sustain its support and claiming that some are beginning to tire of this war. Mr Speaker, the people of Ukraine do not have that luxury. Our answer must be clear. We will never tire of defending freedom and democracy. We must also end. Okay, well, that's enough of that. But my point here is, uh, Brian, that if we compare uh, what how, her manner of delivery there, it's very subdued, very quiet, a bit depressed, uh, and compare that with how Liz Truss was behaving in the House of Commons uh, just a couple of months ago. Uh, well, and it's like chalk and cheese. So she's uh, very sad about the situation. I think two things are going on. One in her mind, she realizes that she made a very, very bad and stupid mistake by encouraging people to go to Ukraine because they're being killed, those British uh, mercenaries and, and mercenaries from other nations are being killed by the Russians. They're certainly gonna be put in prison for a very long time. And the other thing that has now subdued her is the fact that UK and the US and the EU know full well that Ukraine has lost the war, uh, which is why we're suddenly switching to all this glowing policy that Ukraine is gonna join uh, the EU. So she doesn't really know what to say. Uh, but the BBC carries on because uh, today they're boasting that uh, their experienced journalist, Steve Rosenberg, has been uh, interviewing Lavrov. You can tune into the BBC if you must and have a look at that. Uh, Lavrov, as always, was very pragmatic. He admitted that Russia was not perfect, which is a very reasonable thing to say. The West is not perfect. But of course, um, I, I found the interview the usual arrogance from Mr. Rosenberg. Uh, but one question that he got onto was effectively, well, how can Russia be fighting Nazis? What do you mean by this? And uh, of course, Rosenberg himself seems to have for forgotten that if you just go back in time, here we are, uh, December 2014, here's the BBC uh, admitting that Ukraine is underplaying the role of the far right in the country. But Rosenberg is apparently ignorant and uh, unaware of the BBC's own reporting. Uh, we can go here, and this is interesting, the 3rd of December 2013, uh, we, we can see BBC interest in how social media is shaping Ukraine's protest movement. So BBC is starting to declare its hand in this terrible pie of, uh, of ramping up the unhappiness and rebellion in Ukraine. Uh, this one was particularly interesting by the BBC May 2014 uh, because Russian journalists here being held in a particularly brutal way uh, doubled over with a knee in their back, uh, were being arrested simply for trying to report what was actually going on in the breakaway states. Uh, we'd like to remind our audience that, of course, it's the BBC so-called charity, BBC Media Action, that's been at work building the present um, Ukrainian media, the state media, Sepilny. Uh, but I found this and I was fascinated. This is BBC Media Action, uh, capacity strengthening evaluation for Ukraine. Uh, it was dated the 10th of June 2021. 
uh, but they were advertising in a very strange publication in Turkey for somebody to do this work. So here's BBC Media Action. We can now see very clearly they've been at work in the background manipulating Ukrainian society and they've admitted at their own hand that they have set up the present uh, Ukrainian media system which is pouring out propaganda. So this is the job. The BBC has been supporting its partner broadcaster in Ukraine in its quote reform process. Well that's not true because effectively the BBC has taken it over providing mentorship and support for the management to implement change redesign but when you get into the meat of it you should pay attention to this sort of language the new concept means new workflows based on news gathering input outs, output system with a story centric approach nothing about facts and the truth there might they just want to get a good story out and down the bottom uh, bbc media action now wishes to commission a detailed independent evaluation of its mentorship support and capacity strengthening activities in relation to the to this area of work who could believe that the bbc is capable of going in and improving a country this is simply not credible uh, not in my eyes at least and here's a bit more detail of how to apply so People might like to go and check this out, but essentially it was BBC Media Action that created and groomed the very Ukrainian state media, which is now pouring out the propaganda. And if we want to see how bad things have really got in the West, uh, I would say brace yourselves because Admiral Radikin has come out with this extraordinary statement. Russia has strategically lost the war in Ukraine. So Russia has conquered an area uh, the size of England in a little over 100 days against fully equipped and dug in troops, fully supported by NATO, uh, NATO pouring in the weapons and arms. And uh, this man, uh, I don't know how to describe him, Mike, because I'm going to use some words which I probably shouldn't, um, but he believes that they're failing. Uh, I'm going to say he's away with the fairies and his coloured crayons, and that's a reference to his he's he's rather in love with maps where they've got lots of colored lines over them so this man is not credible and he re reflects the state of the uh, uk military at the moment where senior officers are admitting they have no idea what's happening in ukraine and they're making inquiries of people in other areas in order to find out what the military situation is. Yeah, so uh, we should make the point he is chief of the defence staff and therefore absolutely head of all yeah. of Britain's armed forces. Thank you, Mike. Yes, that's a very good point. Um, okay, where does that take us? Uh, yes, okay, back to the, Ro Ro sorry, the Rwanda situation that we were talking about on Wednesday. Uh, the Daily Mail, we were uh, drawing a, 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 a connection between the, the Rwanda thing and the British Bill of Rights. So let's just talk about this for a second because the Mail has decided to wade in on this argument with a Daily Mail comment, uh, an overmighty European court and the question, who really runs Britain? And there's a hint here in this that, uh, that this is somehow related to the European Union and, and Europe, you know, so some kind of EU control of, of Britain and so on. Uh, but they're saying that uh, the farcical halting of the first Rwanda asylum seekers flight after a last ditch intervention by the European Court of Human Rights is an indisputable blow for the government. The self-righteous liberal elite who had shrilly denounced the plan as immoral and inhumane did not simply uh, celebrate the controversial ru ruling. They gleefully 
uh, rubbed Tory noses in it. Uh, and as I say, we were sort of on Wednesday drawing uh, a connection to the uh, the modern Bill of Rights, uh, this, this legislation which is going to come very, very soon. Uh, and uh, the, the, if you remember, there was a consultation about it in, in uh, March this year. Um, and uh, so the question is, what is the implication for the UK? There's clearly some narrative being built that the European Convention on Human Rights is bad for Britain uh, and we can't be part of it anymore. Although the government at this point has said that the uh, modern Bill of Rights uh, will still operate in parallel with it. Um, well, let's uh, bring this on uh, and just remind everybody that this idea to bring a Bill of Rights in has been running since 2010, since the coalition government of David Cameron and Nick Clegg. Nick Clegg was as Deputy Prime Minister was put in charge of constitutional reform and this was part and parcel of it. Uh, and uh, one of the things Cleggy said was one of the things that has gone wrong is that people simply aren't aware of the rights which every single citizen in the United Kingdom enjoys under the legislation in force. We get a clue there as to how yeah. these people think uh, when, when you know, ordinary people are enjoying the human rights that, that the likes of Nick Clegg uh, provide for us. Um, and we should be very grateful to him, no doubt, uh, and all politicians for, for that. But look, I just want to re reinforce this point because uh, this is a law society and their comments on the new Bill of Rights. Uh, so Human Rights Act reform, a modern Bill of Rights consultation, the law society's response. And some of the things that they're saying here are absolutely key. Uh, first of all, they're saying that the new Bill of Rights will damage the rule of law. A significant number of proposals either reduce government accountability or shield public bodies from it. This undermines a crucial element of the rule of law, preventing people from challenging unlawful uses of power and undermining good governance. It's going to prevent access to justice, they say. Reducing government accountability undermines the ability to access justice. Several proposals would make it harder to bring human rights claims or reduce the availability of effective remedies. And the most uh, worrying aspect of this, it's going to remove or reduce rights. Uh, it's alarming that proposals include the removal of rights on a blanket basis from certain, certain categories of individuals. Other proposals reduce protections or lead to an overall lowering of human rights standards. So look, I'm going to call out the Daily Mail once again because they're not considering this. Uh, they're simply pushing the government narrative uh, and the government narrative is that the European Court of Human Rights is an interfering body uh, that, uh, that, that, despite the fact that it's got Brits on the on the court, that's neither here nor there. It's an interfering body. It intervenes, it interferes in in the UK government's right to oppress its own people to its heart's content, uh, and really it has to be uh, gotten rid of. Uh, and uh, we need a new Bill of Rights in this country uh, so that uh, we can have our rights removed. And if this has been my argument about the whole human rights thing from the beginning, uh, from the beginning of the column anyway, Brian, that uh, of course you're reliant on something being given to you by a politician and what gives them the right to uh, decide what your rights are? Well, uh, this is the question, who is really running the country? The answer to that is, an, is in reality an unelected cabal of people. But I think that we're going to have a lot more discussions on this because uh, we've got a possible succession coming up. Uh, so the whole um, constitution of the country is going to come into turmoil. And I think this is a devious hand in the background to uh, actually lock us into something which is even less than democracy than we've got now. That's my view on it. Uh, the other comment I'd make is 
um, I think, hypocrisy by the Daily Mail and the Telegraph as well. If I go back a few years, maybe 10 plus, uh, but of course they were getting very hot under the collar that a lot of the European judges uh, had come from a communist background and were clearly still, still communists, but they never followed up on it. It was a splash article and then it was simply lost and forgotten. Yes, well, one of the rights uh, that is being removed for certain is the right of privacy uh, on the internet. Well, there's discussion to be had of this, but I'm talking with respect to government in particular. So this is Civil Service World, and their headline is uh, Wall of Silence surrounds plan for a nationwide collection of citizens' uh, internet records. Now, what they're saying here is the government has been running a pilot with two of the major internet service providers uh, in the country to collect uh, the data on all the websites that people are browsing uh, on uh, their day-to-day -day, uh, use of the internet. Uh, but they're going to roll this out uh, nationwide across all uh, internet service providers. So they're saying the rollout of the nationwide platform follows trials that came to light last year. Uh, there's been no announcement from the government or other public authority of the decision to expand these explorations in a full national program. Uh, one which could allow law enforcement agencies to access information on all websites visited by any individual in the UK. The creation of a nationwide platform was rather revealed in a recently published online procurement notice, inviting bids from tech firms to provide support to the migration of IT systems, as well as the development of a tool following allowing authorities to search for information and filter results. Uh, the, after discovering the notice, Civil Service World's sister uh, titled Public Technology contacted the Home Office and National Crime Agency, uh, as well as the watchdog responsible for overseeing communication surveillance. Uh, it also contacted the UK's 16 broadband providers and mobile networks and the primary trade body for ISPs. And strangely enough, none of those organizations answered any of their questions. Um, so there you go. Uh, this <clears throat> is happening now. And uh, uh, you know, obviously if people want to avoid that, then best to consider using a VPN on a regular basis. VPNs don't uh, uh, provide uh, you know, total privacy by any means, but they are a good step at least in restricting this access uh, to your uh, data. Uh, my personal choice would be Mulvad, but uh, other uh, VPNs do exist. Um, uh, but uh, I think that should become a matter of course something that everybody uses every time they use the internet. Right, and a comment that's come that's come in while you've been speaking, Mike, is somebody is saying this is Ministry of Truth, and I think this is, this is absolutely yes. right, that this is the total surveillance society if we allow it to happen. So the government is not about building uh, back Britain better. It is about control, and it's, it, it is about demolishing many of the things that this country stands for. So... Um, we've used the term a government of occupation in UK, and I think that term is becoming more and more apparent. Uh, Mark, did you have a comment? Yes, I just learned last night that the Department of Homeland Security disinformation construct that failed, and it had that quirky woman heading it, uh, has been switched, they're saying, to the White House, and now Kamala Harris, that intellectual of the US, supposedly would lead another effort in Washington to weed out what they call disinformation. This is just coming out. Uh, Mark, I've heard the name uh, Mike Chertoff also involved with that. Uh, that should uh, make you feel good. Yeah, former DHS, and then he went into the private sector uh, post 
and was involved in creating the scanners at airports, the RapaScan brand of scanners that, of course, x-rayed your entire body, you know. So yes. yep. what Good goes stuff. around comes around. Well, indeed. Uh, okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there, uh, or you can pick something up from the, the UK Column shop. Um, but in the meantime, uh, do please share any material that you find on the various platforms. I think we might have a duplication here, Mike, so we might need to uh, just oh, okay. jump on through. Okay. Um, well, it can't be a bad thing to duplicate an ad for the UK column, but we won't make our audience suffer too much. Uh, let's just remind people that where people are active and they're doing things in a polite, well-behaved manner, we're fully supportive. So Saturday, the 18th of June, one o'clock outside Truro Cathedral, solution-based freedom rally. So if you're in the southwest of England, uh, the weather is good. Perhaps you might like to give some support. Um, OK, uh, Mark, uh, you've published an article on the UK column website called World, world Leaders All But Admit Major World Health Organization Empowerment is Imminent. Yeah, this is very interesting. Uh, not too long ago, the Washington Compost, as some of us call it, ran an article kind of like a, a blitzkrieg type thing to ward off any theories saying, oh, anybody that believes the uh, WHO is seeking more power or wants to run things in terms of pandemics is crazy. They wear tinfoil hats. They're just another conspiracy theorist. But if you look harder, what they're doing is they're trying to kind of creep past us wearing soft slippers so we don't hear their feet on the floor, you might say. And the article I wrote quotes in no less than five places where they're talking about strengthening the WHO. Just to give you an example, the director general, Tedros uh, himself said this, the WHO is committed to stronger governance, accountability and efficiency. And then he went on to say, referring to the world pandemic treaty that I'll talk about in a minute, a stronger global health architecture is needed. And then he also added, uh, we're talking about a stronger global architecture for health emergency and response. So constant re references to strengthening the global health architecture for responding to pandemics. And response, of course, includes vaccination schemes, uh, personal protection equipment like masking, which can get very tyrannical, as we've learned. So they're speaking out both sides of their mouth in typical Orwellian fashion, and that's the essential thrust of this article. And what's most interesting, however, is that there's a group of world leaders, and what you're showing there is the press conference um, official record from June 1st, where most of the WHO's official pronouncements that I just referred to came from. But the British House of Commons Library and I believe I sent you that slide too. Yeah, there it is. Uh, just before the 75th World Health Assembly of the WHO, which ran from May 22 through May 28, the House of Commons Library noted, quote, the WHO is negotiating a treaty on pandemic preparedness, the roots of which go back to March of 2021. Uh, the briefing document for members of parliament goes on to explain that March last year was when a group of world leaders led by Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced an initiative for a new treaty on pandemic preparedness and response. From there, the initiative was taken to the WHO and will be negotiated 
drafted and debated by a newly established intergovernmental negotiation body. So look at what's happening there. The process is that these world leaders get together and they seem to think of themselves as kind of a quasi-legislative body, even though presidents and prime ministers and different cabinet ministers are executive positions. But when they meet in these internationalist confabs, they, they see themselves as quasi-legislative and then they're sending it directly to the WHO and then from there to the new uh, intergovernmental negotiation body that no one knows anything about who will do the debating, evidently not parliament, evidently not the U.S. Congress. So the procedure is very opaque, constant references, as I say, five references in this alone to stronger governance on the part of the WHO especially with pandemic responses, and a world pandemic treaty being formed and molded in the way I just described. So as you can see, this is a rather unsettling development. Uh, and then there's a cities aspect to this as well. Yes, uh, and I'll talk about that in a minute. That segues very, very nicely, Mike, thanks. Um, that slide you're showing there was a preliminary meeting by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs prior to their Pritzker Forum on Global Cities, which just wound up uh, June 9th, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But the cities aspect is about cities um, acquiring more power and acquiring more influence uh, in their own right amid the pandemic. The pandemic is just another thing to leverage. Yesterday it was climate change, today it's the pandemic, let's say. And, and so whatever the reality is of the pandemic, some call it a bioweapon, some don't, uh, the real bioweapon, in my opinion, is the vaccines themselves. But this was a meeting where Helen Clark took place, the former New Zealand prime minister. She took part in it, rather. And they talked about future pandemics. And they talked about it, and I may have mentioned this prior briefly on the UK column, they talked about future pandemics like they are a virtual certainty, if not a total certainty. In other words, just get used to this. Things are in a lull right now. We're in the eye of the storm. There's going to be more. We need a world pandemic treaty. And I, I showed how the governance here is, is stacking up so far. And I might add, too, that those world leaders that are making these recommendations to the WHO includes the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, as well as Mark Ruddy, a, a common Bilderberg attendee, the PM of the Netherlands, and several others. Uh, the, the list is in the story for listeners and viewers to, uh, to check out. But um, yeah, the, the cities are involved. There's a lot of leveraging going on, but it all points to the WHO's major empowerment. Okay, and so let's uh, move on then to the, uh, the event you're talking about, the uh, Pritzker uh, Forum on Global Cities. Yeah, Peter Spiegel, that uh, epitome of journalistic integrity, he's the uh, Financial Times, some call it the Bilderberg Times, uh, US managing editor, and the words that the words that he said, his comments, I think most most succinctly show what this is about. And what he said is, in essence, is since 2015, he had assumed that the work of the Forum on Global Cities was all about making cities more livable, putting public transportation and infrastructure on the global agenda, all fairly, you know, seemingly mundane items highlighting international policy disputes over free trade, over immigration, over multiculturalism, and et cetera, et cetera. But much of that, he said, has been pushed to the back burner due to the pandemic, 
which called into question the very survival of our cities, he said. And that's due to population density, uh, physical commingling in cities. And then uh, protests erupted, calling into question the uh, police department and judicial policies and the systems in the U.S. over George Floyd's apparent murder, that, that event in Minnesota some years ago. And just as the pandemic created frontline medical heroes amid these massive vaccine, vaccine programs, and just as George Floyd's uh, killing forced us to uh, find police chiefs and mayors who are willing to carry out major reforms, ergo, the Ukrainian conflict, not just the pandemic, but the Ukrainian conflict has brought forth local and regional officials who've emerged as leaders of their nation and leaders of the world. He's talking about mayors being leaders of their nations and leaders of the world. More of the global studies philosophy that I've talked about, guys, where they're trying to kind of flip things and give cities extraordinary powers that are really not found in constitutions and have them be um, involved in diplomacy, have them be in, involved in things that are usually the domain of the nation state and, and so on and so forth. So um, then they talked about, he talked about Peter Spiegel, mayors like Rudy Giuliani, who emerged as a hero uh, amid 9-11 because he was mayor of 9-11 at the time. And he referred to mayors during the communists, the Cold War years, that emerged as heroes um, as, the, as the old Soviet Union fall, fell apart. And he used those kind of comparisons and analogies. But what it, what it really brought forth is that they're trying to leverage the Ukrainian conflict to give the global cities movement even more impetus and even more um, uh, advancement. And, and I would just note that it sounds to me, just like what I, what I heard you guys say earlier, that the whole Ukrainian conflict and, and the BBC media action, in my estimation, and this is just a preliminary opinion, it seems to be a gambit just to get the Ukraine into the EU. Um, and Russia is evidently, there's one perspective that they're, they're resisting that, and they're trying to help some of the partisans in their favor in the eastern part of Ukraine. So the the media action, all of these activities and the involvement of Ukrainian mayors and whatnot, some of whom appeared at the Chicago Council uh, Global Cities Forum, um, it, it seems like that the, the dialectic is to get the Ukraine, uh, Ukraine into the EU, into the Western fold for good. Mm, yeah. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for that. I picked up on a lot of the uh... Uh, uh, things you said uh, when you were talking about global health architecture into my head came global health security because that's another phrase that's being used a lot um, and that really takes us on to the fact that yes we should be deeply concerned that there seems to be this power gra grab by the World Health Organization and uh, if you're going to grab power you're going to need to control minds and media and you've given us a really uh, nice link through to bringing Debbie Evans on. But before we do, let's just remind our audience that uh, yesterday we put out this ad because uh, Debbie was telling us that she'd been doing some uh, some exclusive research and had discovered something which she found really incredible. So we're going to share that with uh, our audience today. Uh, Debbie, let's just uh, bring you on. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we'll get digging into your discovery. Good afternoon. Yes. Um, and I mean, there's 
this is a huge subject so we're not going to be able to cover it all by any stretch um, today on the news but I thought it was just something that people need to look at and question because we are questioning everything um, and why should we worry about what I've seen um, and I think you're going to show everybody now Brian what what we've been a little bit concerned about Indeed. with the United we... Nations no no less yes the United Nations and uh, what's the subject well let's bring it up on screen um, it's psychic numbing uh, when I first heard this expression it didn't fill me with um, a happy uh, feeling there was something particularly unpleasant about it I thought at least uh, we've put in the little headline there should we worry about it well we don't like people worrying we like people taking action but if you're going to take action you need to know what you're up against now we've got three video clips here of a lady in the e, uh, in the UN speaking uh, she speaks quite slowly um, but really the subject is quite incredible so we're going to say to our audience our viewers and our listeners please stay with these video clips as we take you through them so let's have a listen to the first clip where a lady called Melissa Fleming uh, from the UN is talking about matters to do with behavior. The first question is to Melissa. So we just heard from uh, Professor Banerjee and, and Volker about possible ways behavioral science can help advance the work of the UN. And I know that you've been very active, um, many things, but in particular in com combating misinformation, disinformation. Could you share with us some of the practical applications of behavioral science that um, the, the Department of Global Communication has already piloted and an impact that it may have had? So over to yeah. you, Melissa. Thank you, Ayaka. This is a subject, uh, well, this is, if I didn't embrace behavioral science in our communication strategy, then we would really be amiss um, because uh, we, our entire global communication strategy is way beyond just communi communicating facts because behavioral science tells us that people when they're confronted with facts with data with the statistics of human suffering how do they react they feel numb so it's a condition called psychic numbing that leads to actually inaction so what do we want as the united nations uh, when we communicate the facts about our dangerously changing climate, um, about you know, the wars that are driving uh, you know, millions of people uh, from their homes and causing terrible suffering. We want them to do something, right? We want them to feel. So our entire communication strategy is designed around what I call the three W's of cause communications. And behavioral science is, is the kind of backbone the first is the, the what. The UN owns the data. The UN owns the science. We need, to, um, we need to be able to communicate that. That's absolutely key. But the second W is why care. And that why care is where the behavioral science comes in. And that is informed by, um, by the understanding that, that people um, will not feel unless you speak to them in a way that will move them and this you cannot do just by you know making a decision at un headquarters in new york and saying the entire world is going to feel something if i communicate this story this way so it, it 
it really needs to be, um, there has to be a lot more. That's why our communication strategy is very our audience focused. Um, we need not just for a target audience to receive the information, but also to, uh, to understand it, to believe it, to feel it, and to ultimately act upon it. So uh, the third W is, is what now, uh, and that is the, the what now part. So that's the introduction. And uh, what we can get very uh, clearly is that the UN owns the, owns the data. It owns it. The world is the target audience and the UN is going to change the way people think and they're going to change the way they behave. Uh, Debbie, you've got three slides here um, to be able to tell the audience a little bit about psychic numbing. Um, I, I can guess yeah, well, that many... If I just finish this, oh, I can guess on, that many people may think they know where this uh, this series of clips is going to go, but I think they're in for a surprise when we get to the real hit. But first of all, just tell us quickly what psychic numbing is. Well, this lady, uh, Melissa Fleming, is the United Nations Undersecretary for Global Communications, but she's not a behavioural scientist. She's not a doctor. She's a journalist. And she used to be um, head of media for the International Atomic Energy Agency. So this is somebody that isn't a behavioral scientist. And what she's saying is we must protect the public from getting upset, from seeing all of this going on around. And so what she's trying to say is psychic numbing is being used to help us. However, I have to question intentionality. And, and what she goes on to say will, will actually drive drive the debate further because if she's not a behavioral scientist and she's being told things to say then we have to question whether she understands the intention of the methods that they seem to be using like psychic numbing because when you speak to psychologists they go well yes that that would be actually a good thing to do to to actually protect the general public against getting very distressed over a mass situation or a mass panic but actually, as we go further on, and as you as you quite rightly said, bear with us for the three video clips, because as we go further on, it looks to be not quite what they seem to be suggesting it is. Right. So if I just uh, read a bit of the uh, the slide uh, under psychic numbing here, it's got is a psychological phenomenon that causes us to feel indifferent to the suffering of large numbers of people. The quote attributed to Joseph Stalin, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, is an illustration of psychic numbing. And uh, then this uh, from uh, the arithmeticofcompassion.org has got some very good information here. Our inability to scale our emotions when the number of lives at risk increases is analogous to our sensory perceptions, just as we don't notice the difference between 30 lit candles and 31 lit candles, our feelings do not register the difference between 30 deaths and 31 deaths. And we've got some graphs here which probably show it a bit more. How should we value human li lives? Uh, large losses valued more, but how does it actually take place? Well, actually, as the numbers increase, so people actually don't appear to notice it as much. I've got some more comments on that in a minute. Um, but uh, Debbie, just before we head to the next video clip, uh, this is the meat of it, isn't it? That populations, if they're faced with a terrible tragedy, 
actually tend to shut down because that is a way that they can protect themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm a nurse. But from where I'm seeing it and, and what was interesting to link in with it, um, because this will become evident in a minute, is that apparently the public don't trust the U United Nations and scientists. So who do we trust? So this is all a matter of trust and how it's perceived. It's a matter of how protecting or protecting in inverted commas is perceived by the public, but it's all down to intentionality. So I think as we go forward, we can ask ourselves, well, who do we trust? Do we trust doctors and nurses? Because that's what the survey clearly showed in that the public didn't trust scientists, not really, but they do trust doctors and nurses. So how are we going to interconnect that into our behavioral science in order to make people do what we want them to do? And, and that, yes, you've described the thought process in the UN. And this is really what the UN is, is worried about, that it knows it's got to do something to control information and contain misinformation. So we've got a tweet going out from the United Nations here. As we work together to contain COVID-19, we must also work to contain misinformation. That's why we're launching Verified, a new initiative to deliver trusted information, life-saving advice and stories from the best of humanity. So let's get straight on to video two, where this will start to become clear. Let's hear what the lady says in this area. We did a global experiment with um, COVID-19. For me, it was very clear also against the backdrop of witnessing how people are, were just numb to the data of climate change. When co the COVID-19 pandemic hit, it was very clear to me that we were faced not just with a global public health crisis, but a, a communications crisis and challenge as well. How are we gonna convince the world public to adhere to very uncomfortable new measures to protect not just themselves, but society? Um, measures that they didn't want to do and where they had in many parts of the world, their own leaders contradicting the advice of, of the World Health Organization. So we launched um, a very behavioral health, uh, behavioral science based um, strategy called Verified. And Verified um, had three pillars that, um, that were really key to, to, to doing this. First of all, we um, really took that messaging that is science communications, that is often the mistake of most science communications. And that is that it's just in a PDF document with lots of numbers um, and, and uh, very inaccessible to the way people receive information in this modern communication age. We took that guidance and that communication and broke it down into like compelling content that was um, going to travel in the same spaces where people were receiving mis and disinformation around COVID-19. The mis and disinformation being very emotive, very compelling, very black and white, no science nuance, um, and, and really you know, <laughs> providing the kind of advice um, that was accessible in people's feeds. Um, the second was um, a campaign that we launched because we 
we found that what people were doing because the disinformation and the misinformation was so human and emotive and compelling and kind of fed into people's um, people's belief groups, people's tribes, um, that that it was going to be really important that people understood that how mis and disinformation travels. And so we launched an initiative based on behavioral science called pause, take care before you share. Um, and this pledge to pause campaign basically encourages the public to halt for a moment before you share content online to look at what you're seeing um, and really study it and say what is the source of this and become your kind of own um, investigator um, before sharing shocking shocking and emotive material so debbie this lady just saying casually that the un was carrying out an experiment to affect the way people thought and, and behaved uh, uh, we took compelling content and then they came up with pause so you've got a mechanism to uh, really try to stop you sharing information. Um, let's just bring a couple of slides on screen and then I'll, I'll hand back to you. So uh, this is, uh, that's why we're launching Verified, a new initiative to deliver trusted information, uh, life-saving advice. So they were pushing this pretty hard. Uh, here's more about uh, the, the uh, initiative itself, fighting misinformation where it happens striking first and often, um, misinformation, the accidental spread of inaccurate information makes it harder for people to find accurate information online. It can also cause fear, panic and hate. But wasn't that what the Spy B team was Indeed. doing in the UK, was creating fear and panic? Uh, here, before you share, think who made it, what is the source, where did it come from, why are you sharing this? And uh, what she talks about at one point is how this was automated. Uh, but you can freeze these screens and have a look. And uh, this one really tells you how pernicious the initiative was. Verified initiative aims to flood the digital space with facts amid COVID-19 crisis. Debbie, it all comes back to whose facts they are and are they truthful facts? Uh, because facts can be spread in a way that, of course, are totally misleading. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, it's down to language as well. And I mean, they are rolling out, the United Nations are rolling out training initiatives. And this is where, I mean, I think if, if, if Alex was with us today, maybe um, he, could, he would be, or if he's listening, maybe he could do an analysis on what's the difference between training and grooming. You know, there's... <laughs> There's a very fine line, I think, um, between all of this and, and the fact that they launched this initiative in 2020, you know, right at the beginning. And this is clearly talking about an information cascade. That's what they call it, information cascade, where you throw so much information at people all in one go. They get anxious, they get frightened, they get confused, they start to, to worry, they can't sleep, their mental health is impacted. So this flooding of information and information cascade is absolutely crucial to this whole program. And who are we flooding uh, with information? We're flooding the public, our doctors, our medical profession, our police. Everyone is being flooded with tons of, of information. So I think this plays into it very nicely. Debbie, thank you for that. Right, let's get to the third clip. 
And this is where she starts to talk about things which I found truly amazing. They made sense, but now you get the picture. So let's listen to this last clip. And we partnered with MIT um, and who did a study and found that our pause content significantly reduced people's propensity to share fake headlines and was effective at introducing a behavioral nudge that reduces the sharing of information. Interestingly, Twitter, and I, I don't know if they were motivated uh, by our pause campaign, but they very importantly introduced a similar um, uh, mechanism. So uh, many of you perhaps are on Twitter and you've noticed that if you've tried to share an article that you haven't read, you'll get a little pop-up button that says, are you sure you want to share that before reading it? This goes a long way to stop the spread of the mis and disinformation that was leading people to behaviors that were extending the pandemics and killing people, quite frankly. And finally, and this is a really important learning um, and also something that we're going to be um, expanding and continuing. We did a, a mass experiment with what we call trusted messengers. We knew that sometimes the UN um, is not necessarily the institution that people trust. And when you want people to change their behavior, you, it's very clear and it's studied everywhere. Who are they going to look up to? Not some big institution that they're not really so sure of, but people in their community who they trust. And so we elevated um, a, a group of around the world um, scientists who were working in vaccine labs and who were just wanted to, were quite charismatic, but had very few followers. Um, and we trained them on TikTok. And we got TikTok actually to help us to verify their accounts. And they started uh, communicating, taking people inside their labs, explaining how vaccines worked, answering people's questions, and they went viral. Um, they started getting asked onto national TV and became this kind of source of somebody in their neighborhood speaking their language, but with scientific authority for information. We've expanded it to, to hundreds, uh, 100 healthcare workers around the world have created thousands of videos and reached I don't know how many people. Um, so I could go on with all of the, but these are the three kind of areas. And we've had enormous success with, uh, with Verified. We believe we've moved the needle. We believe that we've possibly even saved lives. We've certainly changed minds and we've made science more accessible. We think we can do this in other fields um, like climate change. And so I'm really excited about it. And thank you very much, Ayaka, that's all from me. So Debbie, for me, that, that was the real killer, that they took scientists and, and other professional people around the, the world, they groomed them to appear on TikTok in order to create a social wave to get their message that people should trust these elevated people rather than bona fide scientists uh, that we, we, we have interviewed and shown, such as the Doctors with COVID Ethics, many professionals worldwide, they took individuals, groomed them in order that they would have a meteoric rise on social media. This, this is wicked. Yeah, completely. And, you know, she said people don't trust the United Nations. No, 
we don't trust the United Nations. But then I have to question TikTok. Remember all those TikTok videos of nurses dancing and all your doctors and all the NHS staff clapping outside hospitals. And this was all TikToked. And then you've got to look at the origins of TikTok and you, you see China. But also, you know, these trusted messengers, she said they're elevating people with charismatic personalities who are going, wow, all of a sudden, you know, we're in the we're in the limelight. But who else were the trusted messengers? And then again, if we go back and we look at who do the public trust, the public generally trusts doctors and nurses. So then if we look at the information cascade for our GPs, for example, our GPs were getting different information every single day. But you know what? It just carried on and carried on. And before they knew what, they were being almost groomed themselves. Did they realize or have they been groomed? This is where we need a, a psychologist to sort of pick this apart. But my, my worry is that these trusted messengers, maybe Melissa is a trusted messenger. Maybe she's being fed information to, to make other professionals trust her in her role. Who do we trust? You know, well, the Debbie... doctors, our, our GPs seem to have lost the ability to critically think. So we have to ask themselves, have they been overwhelmed by information? And now they've been groomed into this position of becoming a trusted messenger because we all trust our doctors, don't we? Yeah, Debbie, thank you for that. Well, we're delighted to say that we've, we've got some, psycho, um, some uh, qualified experts in psychology who are now talking to us about this. So I think we're going to have a bigger dialogue in the coming days. Um, but uh, we're tight for time now, Debbie, so we're going to have to end. But I'm going to say thank you very much for sharing that research with us. I know there's a lot more to come. You've talked about doctors as a trusted messenger. Let's pop a different uh, profession up on screen because, of course, particularly in America, uh, a, a veteran or a serving military person would be seen in a very good light by a lot of people. Um, so we're not saying that uh, Sergeant Joseph Quarterman is in any way bad. Um, he's holding a leaflet up here because I care. And probably he does. But what we're saying is, is it right? Is it ethical for the UN to be skewing people's behaviour by the use of applied psychology? Surely that's known as propaganda. It's well, it's yeah, it's propaganda, Mike, but it's drilling, applied. applied, isn't it? It's drilling into people's minds. So an admission that the UN manipulated people by elevating these uh, professionals, first of all, through TikTok and then on world media it's pretty disgraceful stuff mark yeah first of all it's really unethical also for a journalist a so-called journalist to even act this way or get involved this way what has journalism even become right they're they're basically handmaidens of the state but the brief thing i'll mention i know we're a little tight for time is then when they switched this disinformation body in the U.S. from the Department of Homeland Security over to the White House, as I mentioned earlier today, they specifically said that the U.S. federal government is going to really come down on the social media companies and their feeds. This woman uh, that Debbie talked about talked about the feeds, you know, that the tribes of people, clans of people are hearing what they want to hear. And uh, it's compelling and it's emotive. It's sometimes shocking, but at least it's motivating. And the powers that be just can't seem to motivate motivate people with climate change scare stories or, or pandemic scare stories. But critics like ourselves are motivating people. So you see, they are losing the narrative and that's good news. 
But the thing to keep in mind is what they're doing in Washington. They're going after those speeds themselves, coming down, trying to regulate the social media companies. So platforms for uh, critics like ourselves will become either more expensive or maybe more or less accessible. They're going after the infrastructure of the Internet, the platforms themselves. I don't think they'll succeed, but that's what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mark and Debbie, thank you both very much for joining us today. I think we've got a little bit more information out about what's really happening and the increasing control of the state, but we need to leave it there. Uh, we can't uh, do an extra today. Apologies for that. We've got uh, some work to do here. Uh, and uh, But we'll be back at uh, 1 p.m. on Monday as usual. And thank you very much, all our viewers and listeners, whatever you're doing. Have a good weekend and don't get too panicky. The sun is going to be shining, apparently. We'll see you. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.